The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the first half hour is Wes Wood. He is the president of the Wood Financial Group, a financial planning company based in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Welcome to the show, Wes. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. Let's just start with a little bit of your background, uh, both educational and how you uh, got to creating this firm, and a little bit about the kind of clients you serve. Very good. Now, well, I uh, started this firm about eight years ago now, been in the business for a total of approximately 13, but right out of college, I graduated with accounting and finance is my uh, avenue that I really wanted to get into and, and was uh, hired right out of the gate by a large uh, insurance company with an investment division and was a uh, basically a captive agent, which means really only kind of focused on their products and their solutions. And um, after doing that for a, for a couple of years, uh, the stock market started making some changes. Their industry uh, was moving a different direction. So I decided to become an independent advisor and continue working with individuals instead of going on the, the management track. So uh, from there, I worked for a, for a large advisor in, in Memphis, Tennessee, that um, was basically a mentor and kind of got me uh, up and going and, and educated me. And then we opened this office up about eight years ago. We have multiple offices in the in the middle Tennessee area. And um, primarily, the, the folks that I work with are, are folks that are getting close to, at, or are in retirement. So we're generally considered a more conservative financial group than, than most out there. And along with that, we have an accounting practice that we prepare income tax returns for clients and tax clients and have a, a couple of CPAs and accountants that work with me on that side. So we try to you know, t- touch every, every segment of a, of a client's financial life when it comes to their investing, to their taxes, to their estate planning. What is the biggest problem you're hearing from people in the pre-retirement and retirement stage right now if they've accumulated some assets and they're not really earning much, if not anything, on CDs and money market funds? What are you hearing from them as their biggest concern these days? You know, most people that are in retirement have been for quite some time. Their main concern is they don't want to worry. They do not want to run out of money in retirement. Just the, the feeling and concern of doing that, they don't want to get to a point where they're in their 80s or 90s and they're having to be dependent on their children or grandchildren to take care of them financially. So their main concern is, is that um, they, just, they just don't want to have to deal with that. So the problem is right now that, you know, a few years ago you could get 6 even 7% on FDIC-insured deposits and, and have, a, have a decent amount of income coming in just off of that. But um, really because of what's been happening with the stock market and the fluctuations there and with the government intervention and uh, with interest rates as low as they are, instead of getting 6 and 7% at the bank, they're getting, if they're lucky, maybe a percent. So they're, they're having to look at other avenues to, to generate that kind of income um, that they were, they were accustomed to just a few years ago. So what are some of the avenues you have them explore to earn decent yields without too much risk? Well, you know, it depends on, on the client that, that we're working with, but um, I, I will say that most people that come in that, you know, let's just say are in a situation where 
Um, they have a pension, which, as a matter of fact, those are kind of going away. But let's just say they have a pension, they have Social Security, and that covers 75 to 80% of their income, and they've got another, um, another investment portfolio that may be an IRA or a 401k or a non-qualified account. Uh, we want to analyze their situation, see what their risk tolerance is, and then build a portfolio. And if they're looking at needing income now, um, we, we have to look at um, you know, how much risk they're willing to take. If they're willing to take on no risk, we have to stick with those FDIC-insured deposits, maybe fixed-rate annuities, areas that are guaranteed against, uh, are, in most cases, are guaranteed against loss. If they're comfortable with taking on some risk, you know, we can start looking into maybe individual preferred stocks, uh, individual bonds that they're holding to maturity, um, annuities in some cases, uh, real estate investment trust, um, alternative investments. There's a there's a quite a few different investments in that what I call that income generating environment. And you know, if they're okay with taking even more risk, then we can look at high, higher dividend paying stocks, maybe look at the stock market for a portion of their money, but you know, we don't want to stick their neck out there too far where they risk losing a lot of their principal in case we have another downturn. So let's talk about some of those individually, like preferreds, you said is the first one. Uh, what are the pros and cons of preferreds, and what are some of the preferreds you like these days for people who want some decent income without wanting to take much risk? Yeah, so some of the, um, I'll start with the, the, the pros. The, the good thing about a preferred is that when you invest into a preferred, um, you have a set interest rate, which is a dividend, and then you have a set maturity date sometime way out in the future. Um, typically, it, it trades somewhere around the $25 mark per share, which is basically what's called the par value. So the benefit of that is that I call it, it trades on a string. So it's not going to move quite, in most cases, not going to move as violently and volatile as the market, and you're, you're still getting a dividend. It's called a preferred stock because you get the preferred dividend. So if you own a preferred the common stockholders get their payments after you. So if a company declares a dividend, they have to pay you first, then they pay the common stockholders. Um, so it, 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 and right now we're seeing, you know, on, on decent preferreds that are A-rated and up, you know, you can get yields of anywhere from 5 to 8% uh, income off of those preferred stocks. Um, the con, of course, there's, a, there's good size and bad size on any type of investment vehicle, but the, the con is, is that... Um, there is risk. It's not insured. It's not 100% safe. It's more of a conservative investment, but it's not, uh, it's not as safe as the bank is going to be. Um, and the issue is, is that if interest rates do go up, which at some point they have to start going up, if, it, if interest rates do go up, preferreds are somewhat interest rate sensitive, meaning that the value of that preferred could go down as interest rates are going up. Your income may not change, but the value of that preferred could go down. So you want to be you know, pretty picky and not, not stick all your eggs in this one basket. So what would be some specific preferreds that you would like? Or do you like the ETFs or the mutual funds, or do you like individual preferreds? You know, I like a mix, but I would, I would say if I had to rank them on, on ones that I like the best would be individual preferreds that you're planning on hanging on to for many years. Uh, most preferreds you'll find are financials. So if we just pick a few of them, Charles Schwab could be one of them. Charles Schwab has a preferred that you know, pays a little bit over a 6% distribution rate. It's trading close to par. It looks pretty attractive to me for some investors. Wells Fargo could be another one. Um, there's a preferred apartment communities, preferred stock out there that pays a 6% distribution rate. Um, you can look at other areas to, to purchase preferreds if you don't want to just go individuals. And you could use like a preferred unit investment trust or what's called a UIT, which basically it's a, it's a way to take a smaller dollar amount and diversify it across, across a whole lot of different preferreds with, with a single investment. And the benefit of a, of a UIT is that 
you may have one that has 60 to 100 different preferred stocks in it, and you can look at the prospectus and know exactly which ones you own. The distribution rate typically comes out monthly instead of quarterly, so the, the income is more reliable on a monthly basis. And, uh, and you hold that, that UIT until it uh, matures, and then at that point, uh, you, you get um, whatever the value of, of those preferreds at that point in time, or you can elect to hold on to the preferreds for life. Uh, who, would be one of your fa- who would be one of your favorite providers of uh, preferred uh, UITs? Um, you know, there's a couple of different companies. I, I would say that I've been leaning on First Trust portfolios primarily. Okay. They've got they've got a few different ones to choose from. They've got an aggressive preferred portfolio that looks attractive to me. They've got a preferred income portfolio that doesn't pay quite the yield, um, but it, it could be a little bit more stable if okay. the stock market crashes. And then you say there's some ETFs you like as well. It, it not not as many ETFs. I, I tell you, probably have not done quite as many of those preferred ETFs. I, I would, in most cases, probably stick with the individuals and the UITs just because I know exactly what I'm going to own. Okay. And then REITs was another area you said. Uh, do you think real estate's a good place to get into today for the kind of conservative retirement-oriented person who wants income? Well, they've become very popular since the real estate market crashed. Uh, I think a few reasons for that is the real estate market did take a major hit when the financial debacle happened in 2007, 2008. So people have kind of jumped on the REIT bandwagon uh, and for some hope of, of growth and appreciation through the value of that real estate increasing. Um, however, I kind of look look more at a REIT as a, as an income source. So typically, a, a REIT, like let's just say a corporate REIT, they're going to have a whole lot of different commercial properties within uh, within the REIT portfolio, and basically, you buy a share of that portfolio. And now, all those commercial properties are paying leases. So, as an owner of the REIT um, ETF or stock or whatever you may own, um, you get a distribution typically on a monthly monthly basis. So. Um, there is risk with that, of course, because if the real estate market continues to do well and increase in value, you may see some appreciation. If the real estate market takes another turn for the worse, you could see the the REIT go down in value. But if you're if you're collecting the income or using it as more of maybe an income source, I would probably lean more towards using it for that rather than a rather than a growth position. What would be one or two of your favorite REITs? Well, there's um, there's a quite a few to choose from out there. It's hard to pick one, but I guess if I if I had to, I mean you've got uh, ARI is uh, Apollo REIT, which is a um, as an ETF, and <clears throat> it pays about a about a ten percent distribution rate right now. So it, it's a high yielding uh, real estate investment trust. If somebody can qualify suitability wise, then they may want to look at more of the publicly non traded REITs. Uh, American Realty Capital Trust has done a done a really good job, in my opinion, on. Um, you know, covering their dividend, making sure that their dividend is being paid out of out of proceeds of the uh, of the non-traded REIT, meaning by the leases and not from other investors' money coming in. And they've done a good job on Nicholas Shores and those guys have done a great job on collecting the money, closing the REIT, and turning around and listing or merging the REIT in a, in a fairly short amount of time. And clients have been pretty pleased with those those couple. So you're buying them when they're private, and then you benefit when they go public. Is that the idea? Uh, pretty. It's not. It's called private, but it's publicly non-traded, so it's, you just have a stated share value on your statement. doesn't mean that's what it's necessarily worth, but it's not out there in the market going up and down um, like the stocks. Uh-huh, but you're saying you, you get into it when it's not, not traded, and then it goes traded, and then there's some appreciation typically when it goes from non-traded to traded. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, that's, that's the hope is that um, let's just say your stated value is 10 bucks on your statement. You're collecting a 7% distribution. 
as an example, and once they list, they call it listing the REIT, maybe it'll trade up to, you know, $10.50, a share. Of course, the risk with that is it could go the other direction, but if you think the timing's right and you're, you're on target and it does well, there could be some, some appreciation on the back end once it's on the market. Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Wes Wood. Uh, he is a financial planner. He specializes in retirement planning um, with his clients. He's based in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Uh, his website is woodfinancialgroup.net. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. If you want to know about investing in emerging and frontier markets, or if you have experience in this field but still need to know more, tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham. Gavin explores news, current trends, and insights about both categories of investing. His guest experts, along with his own knowledge, will help you stay above the line when it comes to growth potential, whether in funds or equities. He will look at what to invest in and avoid. Tune in to Emerging and Frontier Markets Investing with Gavin Graham every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m., 10 Central, every Sunday. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Wesley Wood. He's the CEO and president of the Wood Financial Group, a financial planning company based in Hendersonville, Tennessee. Welcome back to the show, Wes. Thanks, Jordan. So we wanted to talk about something else, which is a major change in society here, was that millennials, people who are graduating from college and generally young people, are in many cases staying at home instead of going out on their own. Just tell us a little bit of the statistics of that, and what are some of the implications of that for the economy? Sure. Yeah, this may not make uh, the moms and dads out there extremely excited, but here are the statistics. This is talking about kids that um, maybe have graduated college or high school and are not moving out of the house. So, you know, you thought you were going to retire, and and you thought you were going to be in a situation where the kids are no longer there, and you can turn that bedroom, that uh, child's bedroom, into maybe a study or, or a TV watching room, well, you may not want to do that quite yet because we're seeing an alarming trend where, where folks between, young adults between the ages of 18 to 34 years old are, um, are at a rate of about 13.2% are staying at, uh, staying at the, excuse me, 31% of them are staying at their house living with their parents. Um, and, and really what, so you know, it's one out of three just about between those ages. Where that's uh, really affecting 
the economy, I think, is on a couple of different fronts. But, you know, if those folks that used to be graduating college or graduating high school and going out of their own and purchasing a house, uh, it helps the housing market, obviously, because there's more people out there, more supply of folks out there to purchase a home. Um, and what we're seeing is that now census data is telling us that only 425 new households were formed last year, where they're expecting it to be somewhere around 1.2 million. So it's definitely affecting that arena. Um, also really affecting those those, uh, those parents because they're the ones that um, are still perhaps supporting those children. So they thought they were going to be in a position where they have to spend less on their heirs. Now they're still having to support them. So it could uh, create a, a sluggish um, job market out there for a lot of those uh, a lot of those folks. And what is the main reason that people are staying home? They'd probably rather not stay home. They'd probably rather get out on their own. Why are they not doing that? Uh, you know, again, I don't know if it's one that you can you could put your finger on. Uh, it's definitely becoming more common. The job market is not not what it was years ago. Um, you know, I've got a feeling that if a lot of folks graduate college with a degree, they expect to get a job with that degree, and they're not wanting to maybe take a major pay cut or go work for um, a restaurant or flip burgers or do things in order to get by that they would have to in order to maybe purchase their home uh, or rent. Um, most of it is probably going to be the job market, and it's just becoming more of a common affair, so it's kind of okay to do this now, where years ago, you know, you would never see this happen. And also student loans. They have a huge amount of student loans, so whatever job they have, they're servicing the student loans. They can't be buying cars and homes because they just can't afford it. Yeah, that's exactly right. They may not even get, paid. They may not even get qualified for it if they've got, you know, $100,000, $200,000 of student loans hanging over their head and they don't have a job to, you know, to, to write the check to pay that off. So if you have a client coming in, say they're in their 50s, and the kid has graduated and come back and living at home now, and looks like they're going to be there for a while, what are some of the financial advice you give to the parents? Well, you know, one thing I always mention to, to clients is you, you've got to take care of yourself and then take care of everybody else. It's like the, and, and a lot of people don't want to hear that, but it's, it's like the flight, uh, flight attendant right before you take off. What do they tell you to do when the oxygen mask comes on? They tell you to put your oxygen mask on and then help the person beside you. So you, you don't want to maybe sacrifice your retirement, your savings um, to you know, have, to, have to support a child that may not be moving out of the house for years, years down the road. Obviously, you need to do what's right for your family, but um, we need to kind of look at that picture first. How is it going to affect their financial situation? Can they afford it? It's not going to be a big deal. That's fine. But if it is going to have a major impact on, on their future and their future retirement, they need to encourage that child to, to go on and move out. That's nice to encourage them. They may not be able to do it in many cases, yes. Right. Uh, let's go to some other topics here. Uh, one of them is Social Security. Now, uh, do people have misconceptions about when they should take Social Security, and how is that tra- changing as people are starting to hit the Social Security ages now, the baby boomers? What, what are some of people's misconceptions about when you should start taking Social Security? Well, one major misconception, not necessarily when you should take it, but a lot of people think Social Security system is just going broke. Um, I have people say, well, I don't even know if it's going to be around when I, whenever I need it. Well, the fact of the matter is that, that if you look at the Social Security program and where it is financially, it's actually in, in, in pretty decent shape. If the uh, government didn't do one thing to change how you qualify for it or anything else, it's supposed to basically stay the same as far as payments and payments out until the year 2033, and then it's only going to drop to about 75% of what you were collecting. So if you're collecting a thousand bucks a month, it may go down to seven fifty if they make no changes whatsoever. Chances are we're going to see some changes like when you can qualify, when you can get social security. That's probably the number one misconception. 
The second one is, you know, when you should take it. Um, we, we encourage people to take a, a really hard look at it about when to take it. There's a lot of different avenues that you can go in order to collect it. Um, so there's analysis reports that are available now that you can go get. We pay you know, quite a bit for one that we use with our clients. Um, but you just don't want to assume you take it at 62 and everything's going to be okay and that's your best time because we've seen where, where folks could make mistakes where it costs them hundreds of thousands of dollars down the road because they took it at the wrong time. Yeah. So is, is the best thing to wait till full retirement age of 66 or even 70 if, if you can afford it? If you can afford waiting, is that the best way to go? In a lot of cases, it is. Um, in some cases, it's not. I would say the case that it is is that if you're, if you think your health is very good, financial planning becomes really easy if you've got a crystal ball and you know exactly how long you're going to live. Unfortunately, there's not. But if you're in good health, you think you're going to live a long time, the benefit of waiting until age 70 is that you get an 8% simple interest added to your payment that you would collect. So I'll give you an example. If you were going to collect $2,000 a month at... Uh, at age 66, and you just simply wait until age 70. At age 70, you get almost $2,600 per month, uh, a $600 raise, and then when those cost of living adjustments happen, like the 3% cost of living adjustment that adds to that, you get more money added to the amount of money that you get from Social Security. So if you live until age 85 or 90, uh, you would collect literally tens and tens of thousands of dollars more money had you avoided because you're getting the percentage increase on a bigger base, is what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's a good way yeah. to put it. Uh, the other thing is required minimum distributions. A lot of people, when they hit 70 and a half, have no idea how to do these RMDs. What are some advice and what do you deal with with clients reaching 70 and a half and having to start to do the RMDs? Yeah, you got it. You know, very important thing to look into, once again, whenever you're taking out required distributions, you want to make sure you do it the right way. If you fail to take a required distribution, the penalty is pretty severe. The IRS can basically penalize you for half of what you should have taken. So if your required distribution is $10,000 and you fail to take it in a given year, you may owe a $5,000 tax bill. So you want to make sure you take it out for one. Um, and then which accounts to take it out is important as well. A lot of people don't know this, but you can, if you've got multiple IRA accounts, you don't have to take out a required distribution out of each and every one of them. You can total it all up what what it's supposed to be, take that total required distribution out of one IRA, perhaps the one that's underperforming. So you kind of add up the total amount of assets you've got in all IRAs combined, and then you take out a certain amount. Now, it's based on life expectancy based on the age you are. Is that correct? So I think it's at 70 and a half, it's like 14 years or something like that for men. Is that the, the way it works? That's correct. As a percentage-wise, it ends up being about 3.6%. Um, so if you've got a, you know, $100,000, you've got to take out about 3600 bucks when you turn 70 and a half. If you still have $100,000 at age 85, you need to take out almost $6,000. I see. Okay. Um, so do you think a Roth IRA is a better way to go that you don't have to be hit by the RMDs, even though you might have to pay a tax earlier? You know, I, I do really like the the Roth IRAs. You're, you're taking a gamble on either one of them and where to put your money because you know, you're, you're basically saying in a Roth IRA that taxes are going to go up, um, which right now taxes are at a historic low. I know a lot of people don't believe that, but the taxes are very low. So if you believe the taxes are going to be higher in the future, then the Roth IRA may give you the better benefit because once you put the money in there, you never pay taxes on those dollars again. What are some of the big mistakes you see people making with tax planning? Um, I would say some of the major mistakes is just just not um, planning correctly and not being educated enough or or understanding where their income is coming from when they do retire. Um, I've seen a lot of people 
actually pull money out of their IRAs or 401ks to pay off a house. Um, and that, that could create a major tax time bomb, major tax consequence, because, you know, if you pulled out $100,000, $200,000 out of your IRA or 401k to pay off your home, you've got to pay taxes on all that money in one year. So you may want to put together more of a plan to, to pull those funds out of those IRAs and 401ks over a long amount of time in order to pay off that house instead of just doing it all in one year and increasing your tax rate. What kind of tax changes do you expect going forward here as far as rates and capital gains? And uh, Do you see tax rates going up? Uh, and what are some of the big changes you see set coming? I, I see them going up. I mean, we, we're $17 trillion in debt, and um, government uses a fancy word called they need to create more revenue, which basically means they need to create more taxes. So who are they going to hit? Um, they typically go after the, the higher income uh, folks and um, and a lot of it, like we saw tax changes in 2013, folks that had uh, income more than 200,000 or 250,000 dollars of income of 250,000 if they're married filing jointly, they had an increased um, investment income tax of 3.8 percent. So a brand new tax out of nowhere increased their uh, their income tax of 3.8 percent on investment income. Capital gains went up from 15 to 20 percent. I see those types of changes on investment income continue to go up and uh, potentially deductions go down for those higher net worth individuals. And on the healthcare front, what do you see happening uh, with healthcare premiums and uh, all the, the changes according to the uh, Obamacare? Well, I, you know, I don't want to keep painting kind of a grim picture for folks, but um, there's still a lot of uncertainty on how, this, how Obamacare is going to work. Um, you know, a lot of cases, unfortunately, when the government or Congress puts out something this large, uh, they underestimate the, the, how much it's going to cost. Uh, definitely see health care going up. I mean, obviously, there's a higher demand for it. As people are aging, uh, baby boomers are getting to a point where they're going to the doctors more. There's more of a demand for it. Um, the cost of it, I believe, believe will continue to, to, to rise. So that's now after the election, uh, businesses, the exemption on small businesses is going to be no longer. Do you see a lot of small businesses changing the kind of uh, health care they're going to be offering their workers? Uh, yes, I do. And actually, I mean, even for our, um, our health care here that we're able to offer some of our, our employees that, um, you know, I was paying some of the um, health care expenses for employees that I have under my roof just as being a good benefit. And since the changes came through, um, it, it quadrupled the amount of costs that I had to pay out in order to cover the, you know, health care expense. So I definitely see small businesses because, you know, they can make changes quicker. They'll, they'll definitely have to really look into that to see, you know, make sure they're not having to come out a whole bunch of extra money. So what will happen? Will people pass on more of that cost to workers or they'll drop health insurance altogether? Or what would be the, I mean, in, in your case, for example, what, how did you react to a quadrupling of your costs? Well, we, um, we just, Ate the cost, so we, we had to had to eat that because it's something that I promised to to do so. But you know, I see a lot of uh, employers just uh, paying the penalty and dropping uh, potentially dropping that uh, health care benefit, which is not the way it was designed. Right, it was designed to have everybody be insured, not take the penalty. Right, exactly. But if you look at the cost of it, it uh, it actually may save uh, businesses money by just paying that penalty. As long as the penalty is small, I guess is the way right, it works. Right. <laughs> when the penalty goes up, then everybody's going to get stuck one way or the other. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Well, very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Wesley Wood. He's the CEO and president of the Wood Financial Group, uh, based in Hendersonville, Tennessee. 
Um, his website is woodfinancialgroup.net, and you can see he's a real expert on all these areas of retirement planning and income. So thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Wes. Thanks, Jordan. Take care. Thank you, and we'll be back after this break with our next guest. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790, Voice America Business Network. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for exclusive clips from Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday series on Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. Then be sure to watch Oprah's Super Soul Sunday on OWN Network TV at 11 a.m. 10 Central every Sunday. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for this half hour is Danny Kofke. He is a retirement consultant. His company is called Invest in You. Welcome to the show, Danny. Hey, Jordan. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. You've done some other books, and uh, tell us about your latest project. Yes. Um, well, I was a, uh, a school teacher, 14 years, uh, recently um, special education class. And over the course of the time of being te- uh, as being a teacher, I have written three personal finance books, uh, How to Survive and Perhaps Thrive on a Teacher's Salary, a simple book of financial wisdom, and then the most recent one, A Bright Financial Future, teaching kids uh, pre-K through college how to win with money. Um, and, and the thing is, that kind of led me uh, to, to my new career as a retirement consultant. And what I do now is uh, my company, we focus on school districts and teachers. Uh, so uh, I know uh, I, I've walked their shoes, I talk the talk. So basically now what I get to do is uh, go into to schools and talk to teachers and just help them learn how to manage money better, save money so they can invest for their retirement. What are some of the big mistakes that teachers make in, in handling their own finances? Um, you know, it's just the average, like most other people, just not paying attention to the everyday expenses, uh, not having a plan in place. And, and I will say that the cool thing, and I think the benefit of me helping with teachers, is 
uh, we're, teachers are one of the, the few professions left that still do have a pension, and a lot of them have Social Security as well. So if I can go into a school district and I can just encourage a teacher to even save as little as 1% of their salary, a lot of times when you add that to their pension and their Social Security, they're going to be ahead of the game when it comes time to retire. So, Danny, uh, tell us about this particular project you just did on teaching kids about money. Why is it that you think a lot of kids uh, need, need financial education? Supposedly a lot of the schools are teaching finances these days. Well, you know, as a former teacher, I will tell you that uh, teachers do, the education system as a whole does a lousy job. Uh, teaching personal finance matters. We teach all sorts of other things, but uh, a lot of times when it comes to saving money and just the basics, um, we don't do it. And I, what really sparked uh, this for me was the whole Occupy movement where, you know, I saw kids graduating from college, um, $80,000, $90,000 in student loan debt, and they can only find a job at Starbucks. And, and they're protesting and saying, oh, it's not fair. And I, I kind of see both sides of it, that, you know, you did have some children, you know, college-age kids, their major was maybe English literature. And let's face it, if you major in English lit and you rack up eighty grand in student loan debt, it's going to be tough to pay it back because hey, that career is very narrow. But at the same token, I, I looked at us and even my generation as parents and as teachers, you know, we teach, okay, you go to school, then you go to college, you get that four-year degree, and then you're going to have a job and life will be good, and then you'll sail off and retire in Florida. And the reality, that's changing now. And I think so I see both sides to it, and that's when I thought, gosh, we need to equip parents and teachers as well and give tips so they can start teaching financial education to kids so they don't make the mistakes that so many of us have made. Now you begin with what you call laying the foundation. What are some of the things people need to do to lay the foundation for financial education for kids? I mean, just start with the basics. Start what what good money habits are. Um, you know, saving for tomorrow, not buying everything you see, not trying to keep up with the Joneses, having a plan in place, making priorities. Uh, just things that you know, can lead to success over time if you keep practicing them. You also have a chapter about what you call healthy values and habits that lead to financial success. What are some examples of, of values? Uh, are these values that are widely held or are these things that are different than most kids are, are having these days? Well, they're, they're, uh, they're different than most, you know, even adults, I would say, are following nowadays when we look around and see how many people are in debt. Um, you know, so many people, it's, we live in a society where it's, I see it, I want it, I'm going to buy it without thinking about the future ramifications of those decisions. So that's basically, you know, just having some sound principles in place, coming up with a list of, you know, needs versus wants, having savings in place because, you know, things happened. Um, you know, and as adults, you know, if you have kids, they're going to break something. Um, if you drive a car long enough, it's going to break down. If you live in a house long enough, you're going to need a new roof. I mean, things like that, um, just being frugal and trying to stretch your budget as far as possible. So a lot of things that... I mean, it, it doesn't take a four-year economics degree to come up with, but when we look around at society and we see that, you know, the average American, I think, spends like almost 110% of their paycheck, according to some studies, then we know we need to scale it back a little bit. So the difference between wants and needs, explain how that, I mean, people think everything that they want is something they need. How do they make the difference between those two? Well, I mean, we can go back to, to what we learned in elementary school. I mean, we all know what our needs are, food, 
shelter, water. Uh, a lot of times we do need some clothing. But other than that, I mean, we really don't need them to survive. But nowadays it's like I need the newest iPhone. The iPhone 5 just won't work, so I need the iPhone 6. I need this new car. I need this whatever, fill in the blank, piece of clothing, jewelry, whatever. And really they're not needs. They are wants. And I'm, it's okay to want something, but you have to have the money to buy it. And I think a lot of people, we think, okay, we really need this in order to survive, when in fact we don't. And then when we continuously buy things, then we get into debt, and then, bam, it's just so hard to get out of. So that's where we just break it down and say, look, I, I mean, I, like you, I mean, everyone, we want certain things, and that, that's okay to want them, but if we really don't have the money to buy them, then we need to save up before we make that purchase. Indeed. So uh, the, the next thing you go into is how kids learn, visual or kinesthetic or auditory. Just talk a little bit about that as, as helping kids learn about personal financial issues. Well, this is definitely geared more towards the parents, and all of us have different, unique learning styles. And as a teacher, you know, we, we try to adapt to what learning style suits each student the best. And there's basically three types. I mean, you can get in more in-depth with them, too, and kind of go in subcategories. But your visual learners who prefer using pictures, as you can imagine, to, to look at things, they learn best by watching. Auditory learners, they learn best by listening. And then you have the kinesthetic learners, they learn best by doing. So if you can know, you know, or at least kind of understand what your child's strength is and, and how they learn best, then you can center activities around those types of uh, th- those strengths so they can, uh, you know, learn as much as possible. Now, you also have a, what you call a financial literacy quiz about <clears throat> how much does your child already know about money. What, what are the things you ask them at different age groups? Well, and that quiz was um, definitely it was given uh, to high school students, um, but but it's just you know for for my book I start as young as age three, so I probably wouldn't ask three year olds some of the questions you know because one of the questions is like if, what type of auto you know insurance and, and things like that which a three year old isn't going to know, but I think it's important as they get a little bit older, especially the teenage years, the quiz just kind of gives you a base point to say okay this is what they know about money, this is what they don't know about money to kind of have a starting point for you because as a teacher, we used to teach in a way, especially when you taught reading uh, groups, when I taught first grade, what was known as guided reading. So I had some children that were on level, say, R books, um, which were very, very high chapter books, whereas you had other children that are on level A books, which are just the very beginning readers. So you would uh, teach whatever whatever level that student was on. And the same thing holds true when we come to money. I, I break up my books starting as young as age three, but there may be 10-year-olds out there that don't grasp the concepts you know, that, I, that I talk about in ages three to five, so then you're going to have to scale it down a little bit until they grasp those. And at the same token, you may have a seven-year-old that's really good with money and, and kind of knows a lot of stuff, so then maybe you want to teach some more in-depth lessons that you would normally say for teenage years. So are you saying these are things that the parents should be doing at home because they're not getting it in school? Absolutely. Absolutely, I am. Um, it's unfortunate. And I'm not, this is a blanket statement. I mean, there are teachers out there, and there are some schools that do it. But as a whole, no, schools are not doing a very good job. And, I mean, I was a teacher for 14 years, and I can tell you firsthand, it's not, you know, my school, it wasn't done. Little bits here and there, but for a sound financial education, no. And then when we just take a look around, when you just look around at the, the amount of student loan debt, the amount of general debt in our society, it just shows that a lot of people lack the knowledge to handle their finances correctly. My impression is with a lot of states, 
we're now mandating that there's going to be personal financial education in the schools. Is that not making much of an impact? Yes, I mean, some are doing, um, you know, and they are mandating that. And I don't know if it's been a long enough period of time to, to see what the, you know, how effective it is. Yes, I'm sure it's, it's having some type of impact. But like I said, just read some, some statistics and just look. I mean, I think bank rate came out, it was a couple months ago, 34% of Americans have nothing in savings, zero, nothing. So, I mean, obviously they're not getting it. So that's where, you know, we, we need to really start young and teach our kids and just instill some sound principles in them so that as they age, they make those smart decisions. With the cost of college being so high today, and people not having saved close enough to be able to finance college, how can people go to college without taking on these huge burdens of student loans that they're taking on? Well, uh, first I would say choose your major wisely, um, uh, and then I would also say choose the college wisely, too. As As a former school teacher, I would have gotten the same salary whether I went to a state school or Yale University. Same salary. Now, I know in some careers it, it, you benefit from depending on what school you go to, but I think we have to just take an overall bigger look at college. And there's nothing wrong with community college. I went to a community college for two years, transferred to a state university, and like I said, I got the same job I would have gotten as a teacher had I gone to a more expensive school. So I think as parents, we just need to, to get a little bit wiser about it and not just automatically say, okay, we're gonna, wherever they get accepted, we're sending them there. We kind of have to take a look at the bigger picture because student loan debt is one of those things that cannot be erased. So if we you know, have our, our kids get student loan debts, even if they file bankruptcy, uh, get divorced, whatever, it still goes with them. So we have to be really, really careful about it. And that's true with parents as well. A lot of parents are taking on student loan debt. In fact, grandparents are taking on student loan debt. Would you generally recommend that they not do so? (sighs) I would. I mean, I think student loan debt is to be avoided at all costs, if possible. Now, I know that for some, that isn't going to be able to be the case and going to happen. So what I would recommend that if you do need a student loan debt, Make sure it's just for the, the, the college itself. I know some kids take out debt to pay for their living expenses. They're paying for their parties on Friday night. We have to limit it to educational purposes only. And then also, and this may, you know, it sounds surprising, but maybe the kid doesn't, you know, get a full-time, uh, isn't full-time as a student, but maybe you get a job and you work while you're going to school. Maybe take 12 hours a semester and you work some too so you're not getting so far into debt. So I think it just has to all be on the table. And another thing too, as a former you know, teacher, I'm all for education, but college is not the end-all be-all and it's not the only road. Um, and I think that is one of the things that the education system does sometimes is we try to gear everyone towards college and there's nothing wrong with a car mechanic. There's nothing wrong with your firefighters who don't need a four-year college degree. So I do think as parents as well, we need to kind of see what our child's strengths are. And, if, you know, they may not be fit for college for a four-year degree, but they can still have a great job and be valuable uh, in what they do. Before we go to a break, Danny, just tell people how they can get a copy of your new book, which is called The Bright Financial Future, Teaching Kids About Money, Pre-K Through College for Lifelong Success. Um, probably the easiest way, if you just go on Amazon.com, it's right there. If you just uh, Google search my name, Danny Kofke, so D-A-N-N-Y-K-O-F as in Frank, K-E, uh, you can find it uh, that way as well. And you have a website that people can go to as well? Yes, uh, dannykofke.blogspot.com, and you can see links to some of my interviews, and then there are direct links to order uh, all my books too. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. 
My guest this half hour is Danny Kofke, who's just written a book called A Bright Financial Future, Teaching Kids About Money Pre-K Through College for Lifelong Success. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly-based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Danny Kofke. He's just come out with a new book called A Bright Financial Future, Teaching Kids About Money Pre-K Through College for Lifelong Success. Welcome back to the show, Danny. Hey, Jordan. Thank you. So you kind of go uh, by different ages for what kids should do. So we're just going to do a quick review of some of the things in different ages, and then they can get more details in the book. So let's start in the preschool, the age three to five. What are some of the things people should do to get those kids uh, into this whole subject matter? Well, let them know and show them firsthand that you need money to buy things. Um, let them watch you at the store. Hand over the dollars so they know that, okay, money, you use that 
to buy things. Um, another thing, and this is, you know, most of us heard it from our parents, but money doesn't grow on trees. Talk to your child about how you earn the money, that you do go to work and why you go to work and how many hours you work to earn that money. And then another thing that we did with our kids when they both uh, were three is we had a basic chore chart and we had them do chores. And they were easy, um, you know, cleaning your room and putting up your toys, things like that. And I'm not a big fan of paying people for things that they should be doing. But when they're three, I, my important thing was to teach them a financial lesson. So they would get paid for these chores, not a lot. They could earn up to a dollar a week. But then upon getting paid, we'd have three jars, one labeled sa- or, uh, giveaway, one labeled savings, one labeled spending. So upon getting paid a dollar, 10% or 10 cents would go in the giveaway jar, 25% or a quarter would go in the savings jar, and the rest would go in the spending jar. And this helps as they get older, maybe not so much at three, but when they get to be four or five, they see things that they want, it seems, you know, more and more. And then we never had an argument. If we were at a store and they said, I want this, and it was, wasn't something that we were going to buy, then we'd say, well, you can go home and check your savings and spending jars, and you, if you have the money, you can come and buy it. If not, you're going to have to work a little bit longer to, to be able to get it. And then the giveaway jar was great, too, because... You know, let's face it, we live in a society where we're always kind of looking at other people, and we can always compare ourselves to someone that has more than us, but the, the giveaway, it kind of lets us realize, you know what, there are a lot of people out there that have a lot less than us, too. So it just kind of breaks it back down to, and hopefully teaches that, you know what, we, we do have enough, and it's good to give some of our money away, too. God has blessed us, so it's okay to, to bless others as well. Then the next group is the primary years, age 6 to 8. Uh, now they're in school. What are some of the things they should be teaching that are different than the three to five group? Well, you can kind of go a little bit more in depth. Um, you know, and, and what we did with our children when they turned uh, six is uh, I gave uh, them a raise. I said, you can earn a raise with your allowance, but the things you've been doing are now expected of you as a member of this house. But by vacuuming and cleaning your bathroom and not including scrubbing the toilet, I will give you a 50% uh, raise so they could earn $1.50 a week by doing that. And it wasn't a lot, but I wanted to teach, you know, going above and beyond pays off. And that's a lot of times in, in our country. If you go above and beyond your coworker or someone else, a lot of times you will get rewarded. It may not be immediately, but if you are a hard worker, then usually you're going to move up in life. So that's kind of an easy way to teach them at a young age. And then the next group is uh, 9 to 11. Now they're starting to want more things. Uh, how do you, it sounds like they're going to think you're very mean just to be in allowing to have a very small amount in their spending jar. How do you kind of handle that? Well, and, and this is something that, um, you know, what we've recently experienced with my, uh, my oldest daughter, Ava, who, uh, who just turned 10 this past summer, and one day she came home uh, last year and she said, Dad, I'd really like you to buy a laptop for me. And I said, well, why? And she said, well, so I can play Minecraft on it. And I said, wait, so I should work all day so, and buy you a computer so you can play games. I said, no, that's not going to happen. I said, let's think of some ways that you can earn more money besides your chores. So she is a gifted writer. When she was in third grade, she won like the author of the year uh, for our entire county. And I said, you know what, Ava, I have some ties to the publishing industry. Maybe you could write a book. And she kind of liked the idea, so she sat down and worked on it. And actually, September, so my 10-year-old daughter has a traditionally uh, published book, The Financial Angel, uh, 
uh, teaching kids ages 4 to 11 about money. So now at 10 years old, she has a book out there that she is earning money on. And that's where, you know, not every child's going to be able to, to write a book, but those are the things that when they get a little bit older, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, maybe you can start gearing them, say, what's something that you're very good at? And it maybe they have a lemonade stand. You know what we used to do as kids, mowing grass, going, walking the neighbor's dog, whatever, but kind of thinking outside the box a little bit to see if they have some strengths that they could utilize into earning a little bit of money. And then how about age 12 to 14? Now they're getting into the teen years and uh, becoming more independent. What are some things to look for there? Well, we can revisit some of the things. Definitely talking about, you know, the wants versus needs because uh, that's one of those things, especially it seems like every uh, even 12-year-old now needs that iPhone. So, so to kind of really discuss that with them. But also just now is a great time to also talk about the value of work. Um, once they get to be 14, getting closer to 15, just explain, you know, if you get a job, you can earn some money. Um, and I also think, too, it's okay, maybe, you know, closer to the 14, but letting them use a debit card, because let's face it, I mean, I'm all, I, I like it when we use cash, but we're, we're slowly moving into society where many people don't use cash. And we don't want them using credit cards that, you know, and you can't even now without a parent signing. So we experiment with a little bit with a debit card. Let them get used to swiping it, balancing a checkbook, balancing their account. Um, and then also set up some things that, uh, that they can save for long term, like we do for retirement. It may seem so long off, oh, we've got to invest for 30 years. But if we can start them, you know, at 14, say, oh, if you want a computer, you know what, maybe if you put $100 away a month, you do that for 10 months, you'll have $1,000, you can go buy a computer. But just have them start thinking more long term rather than just next week. And how about the high school years? Now they're out driving and having all kinds of great time. What are some of the financial tips for the high school years? Well, I think one of those things we really have to teach is uh, self-control and just explain why so many people get into trouble is because they do not have self-control. They, uh, they blow everything they have coming in, and then they end up broke. And then also, and I know, you know some people, we make fun as a society. People say, oh, you know, you're flipping hamburgers. But I think we need to teach our kids the exact opposite, that looking at any type of job as an opportunity and not complaining about it. Um, you know, nowadays we have people that are making minimum wage and they're complaining, oh, I don't make enough and they're walking out of their job during lunch hour. And I agree. I mean, I think it's tough to live off minimum wage, but you have to start somewhere. And the goal is, you know, when you start at the bottom, you're going to move your way up. So you're not going to start at the top. That just usually doesn't happen in life. So if we can teach our children, you know, look at it as an opportunity that if you can go in and you can do the best job, you go above and beyond your coworkers, then after a while, you're going to, to move up. You're going to get a promotion. And you continue to do that throughout your life, and you, you'll continue to move up. So I think it's a good thing to, not to let them just sit back and complain, but just show them it's an opportunity. And then finally, you have a chapter on uh, once they get to college age eight, 19 and up, now they're out of the home. Uh, what could go wrong since they're off on their own college? Well, I think one of the biggest things in this age bracket is a wedding. Um, and I don't want to sound, you know, unromantic, but there are so many people that go out and blow a lot of money. I think their latest recent report is something like $30,000 when, when you add everything together on one 
day. And then when we look at, you know, how many, how many marriages in the divorce nowadays, which I think is really sad, but it's a fact of life, I think we have to be careful. And a lot of people, they had that magical one day when that money would be better served five years down the road when you got two babies crying and you need a night out and you need a babysitter, but you can't pay it for one because you're so strapped. That thirty grand could have come into a much better play at that point. So I think that is a big thing. Is just you know, and when they are starting to get married, maybe just say, you know what, maybe you're going to want to not blow all this money on one day, but we'll save some for the future. And then also you can start talking about their future jobs when they get to that age and just... You know, go into the fact that money doesn't guarantee happiness. Yes, it takes a lot of worries away, but, you know, if you follow what you're passionate about in life and you can make the money to be able to support your lifestyle, then, you know, every day is fun. When you feel like you're doing what God put you on earth to do, then you don't always need those materialistic things to bring you that false sense of happiness because you're living out your purpose daily. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest has been Danny Kofke. His new book is called A Bright Financial Future, Teaching Kids About Money Pre-K Through College for Lifelong Success. You can get it at Amazon. You can go to his website, which is dannykofke.blogspot.com. Thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Danny. Hey, Jordan. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.